This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. For me, it's like the last like, super blissful moment where I'll stand in this big circle. Nobody has a single clue, like no idea what's happening. And we're just standing in a big circle, kicking this dodgeball that we brought and used one time at Redwall Cavern to have this big kickball game. And we're just sitting there just filling time, hacky sacking and kicking balls and drinking beers. And I think that was the real last, like super, I don't know if innocent is the right word, but it was just this like super fun, innocent last hour of time together before the storm rolls in, I guess. This episode comes to you from an appropriate social distance. While I prefer to be in person with the guest, I defer to video conferencing for this episode. So this episode comes to you from my studio in Colorado, a home in California, and a bus in Nevada. Last month, on February 19th, 2020, 13 riverboaters launched from Lee's Ferry for a 25-day journey down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon in Arizona. 25 days later was March 14th, 2020. When they launched, the coronavirus was still a small story. It was building steam in Wuhan, kids were looking forward to just one week off for spring break, and many of us were planning out our spring river trips. When they got off the river a week ago, we had all entered the pandemic. Somehow, word of their trip got all the way to the New York Times who wrote up a great article about their re-entry. My friend John Romeo was the trip leader and he sent me a link to the story. I asked him for an interview on this podcast to tell me the story and he said this. I'm with you 100%, it would make a great story slash podcast. That said, I know myself and I can write a terrible for a microphone. However, I know just the people on the trip that would make a fantastic interview and I'm sure they'd be down to talk to you. So really, I think that's your best option. John did connect me with two people from his trip. Quite the characters for sure. And excellent storytellers. Here they are. Hi. Hello. How's it going, man? Good. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Right on. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Are you Zach? I'm Zach, yeah. What's up, so man? Still waiting on uh, Mason One Chain Thomas, huh? Waiting on Mason. He's coming. He was uh, he was pressing buttons. That oh. guy, he's always trouble. What's up, Zach? <laughs> there he is. Dude, you have your one chain. Mason earned the name One Chain on a previous grand trip, yet he didn't tell me how. Zach doesn't have a river name yet, but something about corn-fed was suggested. We used Zoom video conference so we could see each other on our computers to make the conversation feel more personal. Mason wore his One Chain necklace, which he also wore for his CNN interview. These guys are a pair. They are still fresh off the river and feeling wild and free. They are funny. And at times, they would catch a glimpse of each other on the Zoom call doing something random and just start laughing, but they would try and hold it in like kids in an eighth grade classroom. And you might just catch a sound of that. And they were just on the river together for four weeks, running big rapids, and they came at this interview with the same vigor. Mason and Zach, welcome to the River Radius. Thanks for joining so much. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. Tell us more about yourselves. What are your names? What are your favorite rivers? And what states do you each live in? I'll go first. I'm Mason Thomas, uh, or as I am known, One Chain. Uh, my favorite river, 
I got to say is the Colorado. I mean, through the Grand Canyon, it's crazy. It's epic. It's amazing. Everything is beautiful. Um, but so far as local rivers do, I'm from California. I just love the South Fork of the American River. It's a party river, class three. Just go float and have a good time, you know, drink some beers and, and mess around. Um, but I also really love the Merced um, during springtime. Really beautiful area and just fun whitewater, constant wave trains. Just really good time. Awesome. Zach, what do you yeah. got? Sweet. So I am Zach Edler. I currently live in Nevada. I grew up in Iowa and have, you know, moved around a few places since then, but currently in Nevada, it's hard to pick a favorite river. The Colorado is epic and we've been lucky enough to do that a couple of times. This last season, I was able to spend a lot of time on the Snake River through Hell's Canyon in Oregon and Idaho. And after, you know, spending almost nine weeks there, it really you know, it takes a little piece of your heart. You know, you start to love the section. The more you do it, the more you love it. So I've been um, really psyched about the snake and spent a lot of time in Colorado on the Arkansas as well. And that Chafee County, just like the snake, just has a huge piece of my heart. So I'm, uh, it's hard just to pick a favorite section. They're all, the more you do it, the more you love it. So my intro told us about what you guys are up to, that you just got off the Grand Canyon. Can you give us the logistics? What's your launch date? What's your takeout date? What was your uh, takeout ramp? How many days on the water? How many miles? Yeah, February 19th was our launch date. So we all rendezvoused on the 18th and met at least Ferry and where we all, you know, had our, for some of us, a reunion, for some of us, our initial greetings and got all rigged up the night of the 18th before launching on the 19th. So we had 24 real boating days, and then our 25th day was our takeout where we floated only a mile to Pierce Ferry, which was March 14th was our takeout. So we were able to get 24 really awesome days, and actually our takeout day, especially before we knew about everything, was just like a really beautiful last day. And within those 24, we were able to have, I just checked before this, we had seven layover days. So we were able to not boat and just go crazy exploring seven of those 24 days, which was just beyond epic. We didn't expect to have that many. What's the mileage on that Lee's Ferry to Pierce Ferry? 277. Okay, 277. How many people are on your trip? So we had, in all, we had 16 people in our trip. 16. So that's in total. We had an exchange at Phantom Ranch. Mm -hmm. So we actually, at one time, only had 13 people on the trip. And what kind of boats are you doing? What kind of boats you guys got floating out there? We had five 18-foot boats. We had this sweet ducky, and it was a Sotar ducky. We had, And we had a couple people just shred that ducky through big white water. I walked into this interview much like I think so much of our population has walked into the coronavirus. Concerned, but from a distance, with an assumption that it won't affect me. Mason reminded me of how close this is to all of us, even when it doesn't feel like it. I just want to mention one thing that, like, you you said the coronavirus wasn't a big deal, you know, and you're right. Like, it's, when we left, that wasn't necessarily, like, a concern for a lot of people. But my mom and my brother are both immunocompromised. My mom especially has some upper respiratory issues, and she got, like, hay fever a long time ago, and that just never left. And my brother has Lyme disease. Pretty serious if you combine him with this COVID-19 thing. So 
it was on my radar before we left. Mm -hmm. Um, it was something that I was thinking about because I know that my mom was, you know, having to think about it at that point in time. So really when I went into it, it wasn't a big deal, but for me, it was this idea that like, maybe when I get out, it'll just have blown over, you know, like maybe I won't really have to worry about this. So did you find yourself thinking about them on a daily or every once in a while basis while you're down there? Definitely, definitely every once in a while. Mm -hmm. It was not daily because man, there are 24 hour distractions (laughs) when you're out there. So Uh, definitely not every day, but occasionally I would, especially when we went and stopped at Phantom Ranch halfway down. Did you guys call home from Phantom? I did not. No, okay. A lot of people, I don't know that anybody actually called. There was an exchange. So we had three people leave our trip at Phantom and three people hiked in. I don't think anybody actually called out with the phone. Uh, a lot of people wrote letters and sent postcards out to loved ones, uh, especially since they had that little uh, stamp that you smack on there that's, you know, USPS carried out by Mule from Phantom Ranch. But I don't believe anybody called, so it was there was no real contact, and only one person received a care package letter. And I don't believe that there was any news mm-hmm. from the outside world. And if there was in that letter, I guess at that point, you know, Corona still hadn't blown up and it wasn't spread to the rest of us. So I don't think that there was any real important information at Phantom. There was no real exchange of of the outside world at Phantom Ranch. And the people that hiked in, did they bring in, in news about the coronavirus? Um, not really. Uh, my girlfriend, Sarah, hiked in and the biggest news at that time, at least specific to us, was that Bernie had just won the Nevada caucus or came out ahead. And from my memory, that was the only real piece of news that we discussed at the time. And it was kind of a she told me about it. I got psyched. And then, you know, like Mason said, it, the canyon just draws you away from the outside world. And some people don't like to have that outside world brought in. Anybody on the trip? Was it their first time down the Grand? Yeah, a bunch. I'd like, I think half, right, Jane? Yeah, I think, I think right on the button, half. You know, uh, I've been down the Grand. I've been on long trips. And even on the short trips, I think that you start to kind of wonder what's going on in the outside world. And you might have some conversations, especially on those long trips, Oh, I wonder what's changed. I wonder what's going on. I'm going to I'm going to make a guess and say that this or that or this has happened. Did you have those conversations? This past season, I spent up in Idaho guiding multi-day trips. And I thinking back, I think on almost every multi-day trip I've taken, it, it has come up like somebody's brought up. Hey, what if when we get back, the world's just all crazy? Like, what if we come out and there's chaos? And, you know, there's always different little possible scenarios. But I I think it's come up on most of my multi-day trips. And it never does. Like, you come out and maybe it's something small or maybe it's, you know, something. But it's never really a lot that affects your day-to-day life until this time. Like, we came out like it was wild and it's also been cool to see with that whole like New York Times post thing that came out was that people were commenting on there and a bunch of boaters that were on the water before 9-11 and before all these other big events. So it's kind of been cool to see these sailors and boaters and backpackers coming out and sharing the experience of like, yeah, it's wild when you come back to a world because it's hard. I mean, a lot of folks and, you know, there was some of this I like, can't wrap their heads around 
being isolated and away from tech, not like away from everything for an extended or a re- like a kind of an extended period of time. And yes, yeah, so I, I, it's come up for me on a whole bunch of trips and it's just a fun idea to entertain to, you know, a role play thing in your mind. And this time it was way different. Did you, um, did you guys, you know, I feel like you typically see other groups, other, other trips down there when you're down there. Did you see other trips? Yeah, we saw a couple. Did, did they have any awareness of, of the coronavirus? None. So you were, there was no information being shared down there about, about what's going on above the rim. I didn't hear any conversation about that. We, we stayed the night with a couple with, with one, um, group twice on, on two separate occasions, actually. Um, and, um, yeah, I didn't hear any talk about the outside world at all. It was all about, oh, how was your line through this rapid? How was the hike on this canyon? That kind of stuff. I don't think I heard one conversation about it. In that group that we stayed with, they had been, uh, they had been, uh, they were essentially on the same trip. They just put in one, I think it was one day after us. They, I mean, they came out in the exact same boat they were. They pulled off a day after we did. So they were really in the same situation. So there was no, yeah, no information from the outside from any of the groups we saw. So last morning, last morning, you're waking up. You, you've had your last camp. You're on probably, I'm assuming that's probably morning 24, uh, rowing out on day 25. And... Uh, tell us about that morning. You know, where did you wake up? What camp were you at? What did you all eat for breakfast? What was the mood of the group? Uh, well, I was on breakfast crew that morning and it was nice because all we had was like some granola and some, uh, long like shelf life milk, you know, that Gossner milk stuff. Yep. Um, so we, we had the cold little granola breakfast. <laughs> and some blueberries, canned blueberries. Oh yeah, some blueberries, and then quickly thereafter moved on to a celebratory beer, and that was probably more, more, or at least the same amount of calories we ingested with the granola and milk. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's also super fun. I think that morning it kind of escalated. Like everybody just wants to like stay in that morning, and it's that last mile. Although it's it's really slow water, but to, I mean it was still you know fifteen twenty minutes on the boat, so it was. So we actually kind of broke into two little pods on the river. There were a couple boats a little bit of, uh, ahead of the last few boats, but it was just this kind of semi-quiet party barge boat of everybody just trying to recant all these small details from the trip and, you know, bring up those funny moments. And it was just this beautiful morning. We're out of Grand Canyon officially, so we can see it behind us, and we have more sky than we've seen in 24, 25 days, uh, which was really sweet. And we, you know, we got to the takeout early, and after we we got ahead of the program, like packed everything up and rolled the boats, and we had some time to kill, so we kept having a few beers, and we ended up playing this like game of hacky sack volleyball thing with a with a big kickball which was just like kind of that for me is like the last super blissful moment we're all standing in this big circle nobody has a single clue like no idea what's happening and we're just standing in a big circle kicking this dodgeball that we brought and used one time at Redwall cavern to have this big kickball game and we're just sitting there just filling time hacky sacking and kicking balls and drinking beers and i think that was the real last like super i don't know if innocent is the right word but it was just this like super fun innocent last 
hour of time together before the storm rolls in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was an awesome last morning. I mean, it was, I mean, it was just the perfect last float mile float down and it was so much fun. What we thought was the most harsh thing to us was that these big, this big cat, a big backhoe was like digging dirt and like moving the ramp and taking big chunks of pre-laid cement and blocks and like laying them. So it was this loud machinery noise and scraping and chunks of rock being dropped. And it was like this, that's what we thought was going to be our rude awakening to this new, this world we had to go back to, you know? And cause I remember just talking to this Sam, this girl on our trip who was just saying, Man, this sucks. I'm like, yeah, we had, we listened to the the river for 25 days, and now we've got to listen to this backhoe scrape its way into the dirt, and you know, rock around and everything. And it was just like, man, that sucks. And eventually, they like went to go have lunch or something, and it quieted out again. Um, and that was right before Blaine got the guy pulled up, the the gear truck man. So yeah. then you're at the ramp, and um, the company you've hired, they show up with their truck. Tell us, set the scene, tell us what this looks like, and tell us what you hear. To set the scene, if if I may, Zach, you can add anything if you'd like. Um, uh, We are, we have all our stuff packed up. We're playing this game of kickball, and we hear the truck come down, you know, start to come down the road. We hear something. We're like, oh, maybe it's just another, like, backhoe coming down or a tractor or something. And someone walks out, sees the truck coming. All right, it's time to go. We're going to have to pack this stuff up. Cool. So he pulls up, backs the truck up, steps outside, gives us, you know, a few precursory greetings, you know, hey, how's it going? Uh, you guys look, you know, you guys look really good out here. Very quickly, you know, he goes and opens the back gate of the truck. This is not a pickup truck. This is a big flatbed cage truck. Huge, yeah, huge, yeah, like okay. full on. It's a quad, like international four door truck with a huge flatbed cage, bars over the top. Yeah, massive truck. He quickly goes around to the back of the truck where there's a hydraulic lift that you can put down on the ground and put your heavy stuff on and put move up to the back of the truck. And he's standing on this hydraulic lift and he he asks us, so how's it going? Or like, this, you know, it's great. We're in bliss. This is perfect. And uh, sad to get off the river. And he goes, have you heard anything from the outside world? And where everyone's like, no. And we're all gathered around the back of the truck ready for him to tell us what's going on. So he's like, he kind of like, oh, you know, there's a lot to tell you, you know, I'm not sure exactly what he said after that, but then he raises himself up on this hydraulic lift up to the truck level, trip the bed level. And so he's above all this, this group of 13 people. And we're all just like staring at him, waiting for him to tell us how messed up the world is, you know, because he, so far he's just like shaking his head and like side. And we're all like, what the hell has happened? And then he goes into very quickly telling us all about, what had just happened, I think, like, kind of, like, within the last few days or whatever, which was Italy um, closing down its borders, which was the toilet paper shortage, which was, um, oh, yeah, the stock market crash. That's something he led with also. And then all of our faces, well, about half of them dropped. The other half was didn't believe him or thought he was messing with us. Yeah, I was in that group. I thought... Because it was, I mean, he, we had known this guy before. He's an old river guy. Like, you know, there's, 
I was thinking like how fun to fill your time. I mean, I don't know how many times he's at that boat ramp a week delivering news and how much fun it would be to like go tell somebody that the world's going crazy and they come out and it's fine. And it's just kind of a funny joke. So we, yeah, we were like Nate chain said, we were split in. All right. Maybe like, God, he's, he's gotta be messing with us. Right. This is too crazy. Like it's too, I mean, it just seemed too perfect to be like, you know, to be true. And then there were the people who thought, I mean, that's a pretty dark joke to lay that there for us to find further down the road. I mean, he, he was like fairly serious about it, you know, with his expression of, and somebody before that, somebody asked him, like, whoa, did Trump die? And he's like, no, uh-uh. And then went into a spiel about the stock market and everything. And even after he left, because after he laid all this stuff out, you know, he said, stock market crash, coronavirus is everywhere, Italy's locked down. He, like, took some stuff up and then went to get lunch ready. Then that was it. And we are all just, you know, kind of look. And really, we looked at each other for a little bit, but then we realized, here's this massive pile of gear that has to go from there to here so we kind of snapped back into the river mode and just started working and at least for me i don't know about everyone else but then it was far out of my mind it was still just the river let's get it done let's get this stuff so we can go to in and out and then go sit in the hot tub later that night so it was just this first initial shock and unsureness whether he was joking or not and then it was kind of right back into river mode of let's load up so we can get out of here all right that's that's really interesting Uh, you know so you load up and you all get in your personal vehicles and you're all headed back to flagstaff you're going to spend the night there correct yeah well we first we we went out to check out pierce very rapid too which none of us had seen Mm -hmm. which is absolutely terrifying and Hopefully you never see it in a boat because it's scary. So we even had another little moment of river joy. We hiked that little trail up to Pierce Ferry. Then we get in our cars. And even from uh, from Pierce, nobody has service until almost Kingman. So you're, you know, you have an hour, hour and a half before you can look anything up. So we, I don't know about everybody else's car, but we were sitting there kind of dissecting what Blaine had said. Was he joking? Was he serious? Like, why would he say that? Wow, that's funny if it is. Like, that's pretty, that's a pretty well thought out joke if it is a joke. (laughs) And yeah, so we didn't have service until then. And we were split into three cars and nobody really had any idea because we still couldn't look anything up until we got to kingman to the in and out burger are you looking for a new riverboat a cataract a raft or maybe you need some new dry bags or a paco pad the original paco pad jack's plastic welding hand builds each boat each dry bag each paco pad in the united states They have been building all of their gear here in the United States since the beginning 36 years ago. Personally, I've been rowing the same Jack's Plastic Cataract for the past 13 years. It's been down the big water of the Colorado River and the narrow, steep, fast drop rivers like the Selway in Idaho. It carries the big loads for the long trips, it threads the slots for the rowdy trips, and it is perfectly tough. And I do not row perfect. I hit rocks, I get stuck, I am hard on my boat. Jack's Plastic Welding is the boat I row, it's the boat a lot of my river friends row, and my gear is always dry and easily accessible in my Jack's dry bag. And at the end of the day, I sleep amazing on my Paco pad. 
Jack's Plastic Welding. Welded seams, hand-built, perfectly tough. So what happens? Yeah. You get cell service and it all comes flooding in. What's the group? What's your reactions? We get in and out. I end service. I turn on my phone. The first thing I see is a message from my mom saying, COVID-19 is out of control. Call me immediately. Don't go anywhere. Stay away from people. And I'm at a crowded in and out. The line was to the door. Holding my phone, looking around like, oh, no. Oh, boy. And then um, we basically eat in and out. And I slowly start to get more and more calls and texts from my family and, um, you know, updates on my phone about news and all that. Pretty soon figure out from the tone of my family's, you know, messages and stuff like that, that it is not like a not a thing to mess with at this point and that it's much bigger than it was, obviously. And so if there were any doubt about if Blaine were joking with us, with us or not, there was no more doubt anymore. And that it was like, okay, now we need to start taking these things a little bit more seriously, um, at least for me. And I know that a lot of other people started getting more and more information too as soon as they got to in and out. In a Mason-specific case, the uh, you know demands more attention when you have immediate family members with uh, that are immunocompromised, and you know I think we all got messages like the world is going crazy. Call us when you get here, and it was just super surreal. And nobody once we got our accommodations and got to the hotel. We didn't go to the news right away. We, you know, it was already six, seven o'clock at night. So we were thinking about food. We were thinking about getting to that hot tub and hanging out. So at least, I mean, I talked to my family, but I still had no idea, no grasp on this huge wave of information that was about to crash on us. And it was, you know, kind of just another delayed blissfulness if you will like we knew it was there but nobody knew how severe it was and we were split as a group of you know how it is super severe and even on saturday night it was you know it hadn't i don't want to say like it hadn't killed that many people but there was the comparison to the flu and all of these things that some of our group were like well maybe it's not that big a deal like it hasn't killed that many people in order to be this huge catastrophic thing. And, you know, there were several different perspectives on that as well. So it was more discussion and more hanging out than actually, I guess, listening or trying to, like Chana said, get that fire hose of information coming at you. So really even through Saturday, we were kind of blocked in a sense from this, insane amount of news and information that was barreling our way. Yeah. I, again, I think it was a little more serious for me than a, a lot of other people um, out there in the group in any case because of my family. But um, yeah, I think that there was very little conversation about it partially because I think we we're all trying to extend that, that, that bliss for a while, you know, like, Oh my God, this world is actually crazy. It's confirmed. Now the world is going crazy. Let's just enjoy our actual last night with a little bit of assimilation into the population we have right now with this hot tub in this hotel. Let's just like be done with that, go have breakfast and then figure it out. What did the world look like to you? I think about like, you're driving through a few small towns, maybe, maybe some are a little bigger, 
gas stations. What did people's faces look like? What was the body language you saw? What was the social distancing? Did you, (laughs) were you starting to pick up on these things? I think so far as physical signs in the world that I saw, it was very little. Um, those first couple of days in, in Arizona still. And then I think it was only, it was the day after when we were driving, when Kate and I were driving away and got into California and we stopped at a place just to get groceries because we heard it's kind of crazy and maybe got like, um, some Clorox wipes or whatever. And so we stop and the shelves, like a ton of shelves are empty. Uh, there's like people coming in and, and immediately going in to ask, like, do you have any hand sanitizer and um you know there's a piece of paper or like a little stand that says like COVID-19 information you know and like you know wash your hands and stay away from people just information kind of stuff so it it wasn't until a couple days after even or a day and a half after that I didn't really see any physical signs we again we didn't have to go into any grocery stores until then you know or really stop at many gas stations and so there wasn't really much of a sign that those first that first day and a half or so, you know, after all this time, you know, you're, you're the last 20, really the 28 days, I can count the tra- um, the travel day to the Canyon and the rig day as really part of the trip. And after that much time, that's so packed full of memories and experiences. I was thinking about, I was like, do I, I don't even know if I have toilet paper in my house. I don't remember the last time I brought toilet paper. Is it there? Am I going to come home to no toilet paper in my house and no toilet paper in the stores? Is there going to be food on the shelves? Like, I have no idea. I don't even remember what my house looks like. Is it? Who knows? I mean, we. I, I don't know what I'm coming home to in a sense of I don't track when and how I buy toilet paper. I buy it when I need it. So, I will have you know that I did not leave it unstocked with toilet paper. There's plenty here to at least get through the next few days to weeks. I don't know. You can stretch it. Have you guys been in touch with the rest of your your river group since you all departed to these four states? Just a couple times. We're, we're exchanging pictures and photos from the and videos and stuff from the uh, trip. So we're like talking in that way. But it's also been crazy because Zach and I have been like going out getting interviewed and stuff by CNN and, and NPR and like all these people is crazy. And uh, so we've been talking about that just because it's like, it's just off the wall insane how this got like picked up and stuff for us. Yeah. How how did it get picked up? You know, I, I saw my friend, your trip leader, John Romeo sent me the, the New York Times link. How, how did yeah, anyone was- find it? A girl that I guide with up in Idaho posted on Twitter or some social media that she had friends on the Grand Canyon that had no idea that this was going on. And I'm not sure how she found that. It was through a filter or if they were somehow connected on social media already. But he reached out to her and she had sent me a message saying, hey, a reporter from the New York Times was interested in your trip. And maybe contacting you if you're cool with me giving him your information. So I said, yes, not really thinking about, you know, what, you know, thinking about the weight. And the next day I get a call from Charlie Warzel from the New York Times and he wants to set up a time to chat. And we did a phone interview and it was, you know, um, one chain and our buddy Stretch had, you know, we've been talking and sharing pictures and getting that out there. 
to them. And it was just this crazy whirlwind of trying to get people who were willing to interview because it came out so quickly. It was, I talked to him, Sarah talked to him, Shane talked to him. I sent him the pictures and 10 to 20 minutes later, the story was out on the New York times. And he actually sent me a little screenshot of the website is like, ha ha ha. You are on the website of the New York times. And then from that point, it just started pouring like family and friends just started pouring in text messages and Facebook posts. Tonight we started getting calls from, you know, NPR called this morning and Sarah and I did a small interview with NPR for the morning edition. Good Morning America reached out to us and it was just been this like super crazy. I mean, I, I haven't been in the newspaper since small town Iowa papers from high school sports. So it's this crazy uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that I nec- I don't, I definitely don't love it. It's kind of cool because once people see it, people reach out to you that you wouldn't have talked to otherwise, which is super sweet. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's this super surreal homecoming in that what are the odds that a bunch of like dirtbag river guides get in the New York Times and talk about <laughs> even this podcast. I, when John, John, so John told us about your podcast and we were, you know, I was just kind of dumbstruck. Like, dude, I don't know. I don't know how to be on a podcast. I don't know what's going on, but it's, it's been pretty wild and surreal, but kind of, it's been exciting also, I guess. Let's, let's keep going with this reflection a little bit. Two questions I'm just going to throw out and you guys answer them as you will. You know, I, I think there's always the, the possibility to create a metaphor between your river trip, whatever, if it's an afternoon trip or if it's a 25 day grand trip, there's always the possibility to take a metaphor from that trip, create a metaphor of an experience on that trip and, and ship it over to life here on the concrete jungle side. So I'm curious about maybe some lessons that you're that you that you have learned over the years of riverboating or in this past month of riverboating that you're bringing with you to the pandemic world. Mm, yeah, I've got a I've got a couple. One is pretty straightforward. One of them is wash your hands. In your in the canyon, you got to wash your hands because if you get a gastrointestinal thing and you pass it on to your other 12 people that are on that trip you're going to be the pariah by the end of that trip right so <clears throat> wash your hands that that one's straightforward every right? single time if yeah. it crosses your mind wash them also that uh you know at least for me i find that everyone in the canyon everyone on a 25 day river trip has their part to do their thing to do you know, and they put in a certain amount of effort and certain amount of energy into that. And I think that that speaks to me on the outside of the canyon because why it would frustrate me to hear my close friends kind of be dismissive of something that is, you know, at least serious enough to me. Um, it kind of goes in that same vein where it's, you know, like without, if people are dismissive and if they're not putting in the energy, it doesn't have to be worried energy. You don't have to like be upset all the time that this is happening. It doesn't have to be like you are like, oh my God, this is terrible. But if you put in any amount of thought and energy into the idea that you don't want to get somebody else sick, 
then you might as well put in a little bit of energy, you know, while you're there, do your job and get it done. You know what I'm saying? So I think that like really there's, there's a place for everyone and there is an amount of energy that is required to make the world work, a focused energy. And I think that in time like this, that is very, very present. And that is a very, something in the forefront of people's minds is that like, without everyone doing what needs to happen, there's a much lower chance of this really working out. That for me is what I'd say. I'm curious about your re-entry. You're, you're, you have re-entered at Kingman, at the In-N-Out, at Flagstaff, driving home to your, your, your respective homes. What's what's going on now? Do you do you even still have jobs? Do you are you working? Um, what are you doing with your time? So for me, I am in a you know it's a fairly weird scenario. Like I'm sure a lot of people are. Where so my partner Sarah, she is back from the trip. She did 16 days. She got on Phantom, and she's a labor and delivery nurse. So tomorrow night, she's about to be fully thrown into the mix and she's already getting emails and videos about uh, so there's not enough masks there's not enough gowns so we're sanitizing and reusing and she is about to get fully immersed and i'm sure her schedule is going to change drastically into this super crazy world because they have confirmed cases here in carson city where she works so she is going to you know get thrown in the lion's den if you will with having to do all these procedures and be as safe as you can, which isn't necessarily safe at all, but it's the best we can do at the time after having been on this beautiful trip. And so I think that's a concern of ours. And for me, I was planning on doing substitute teaching work as I've been an elementary teacher in the past and was going to apply for teaching jobs in the fall for next year or apply for jobs now for the fall of next year. And so that's up in the air completely of how they're going to handle hiring new teachers. Obviously sub work anywhere is now gone. So options are fairly limited. You know, I can potentially go work at some stores, warehouses. And even this summer I was um, planning on some early season Oahe trips in Oregon. And I work for, you know, a company that runs early season trips and those are, you know, all March and April trips are now canceled. So now we're looking at the beginning of May and that's still a huge question mark, whether we can, whether we'll, we will be at a place that we can run trips in May and from that point on for the summer. So we're, we're really unsure of the trips that we will be able to take this summer. I've been talking to some other guys and, we just we just really have no idea what's going to happen. So for right now, I'm I'm super um, job job insecure, I guess, in that I have no idea what I'm going to do or where I'm going to make um, make any money. And I hope that by the summertime, some of this is reasonably worked out. I don't know. So I'm I'm super unsure of what's going to happen next. Yeah, I'm very much in the same boat. Uh, as Zach over there. Um, but uh, I know that a lot of our, our buddies, they are directly affected because they had jobs lined up um, directly after they got off the canyon on uh, mountains, mountain resorts. 
and almost all of those are done. Those are all the all the mountains, all the hills are, are closed down. So those guys directly, like they got calls from their bosses being like, We the mountain's done. So you guys are like directly out of work. Me, I had my life a little bit more open. I planned to go basically back and start raft uh, raft guiding again on South Fork and just in Central California. And it's the same idea. I mean, like we don't know how many months this is going to run on for and if there's any kind of, you know, travel restrictions or if there's, you know, that the um, recommended distance that you're supposed to have in between people, you're closer than three or six feet away from people in a raft. So, you know, it's just not going to be, I don't think this, this season necessarily, unless this gets cleared up real quick, is going to be booming. I've got like some preliminary texts with a couple of the buddies and they're saying it's not really looking very good so far as work goes, um, just because it's so uncertain at this point. And so nobody's really buying there. There's a lot of people who are like, you know, saying, Oh, we don't want to do the trips anymore. Even if they did book, you know, like, um, last year or something like that. So, and so that's, you know, my summer plan, spring, summer, fall plans are pretty much screwed for that, that whole um and now i'm gonna have to scramble and you know do other stuff i'm probably gonna try to be outside um i know like you know i've got some friends who do like tree work and things like that so i know i'm gonna try and find what i can but yeah i i don't i don't have the job i was planning on having um coming back from that we're all kind of we're all kind of river junkies and this is a river podcast and i'd like to just bring it back to that place tell us about your trip some best memories, some favorite places. Let's start with flips. Did you have any flips? We greased it, man. We were uh, we were clean, almost clean. Zach, no flips, no no big catastrophic. I don't think uh, no swimmers outside of ducky swimmers swimming themselves. But there was one incident where I definitely hit a rock. We had stopped at uh, Bedrock. We, you know, had lunch and we were exploring the dollhouse and climbing all around. We looked at it. We're all like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're staying far right. Uh, watch those little doma rocks. So I was going first and I pull off and I'm, I'm, I'm right. Like I am, I'm, I'm as far <laughs> right as you could be. And I look at these little Doma rocks down there and I'm floating sideways, like just gently, gently pulling right. Like, okay, once I hit this little stream of current, it's going to just spin me right around these rocks and we're going to roll. And, uh, that didn't happen. I just had a total complete misread of it. And I float in. And by the time I realized that I'm going to hit those rocks, it's too late. And I just drill these, this little pair of rocks. And it was just, it was just a real damn it moment. Some of the boats had eddied out down below. We had the whole group run up and one of our buddies stretch. He's out. He's like, bag me. So I bag him and I bring him <laughs> over to the boat. Cause I, I mean, we were way too, so I couldn't get off pushing or pulling. I got out on the rock and there's, I mean, there's just no way for me to get it off. So I bag stretch. He comes over and then we throw the bow line over to the shore where there were the, the rest of the group waiting. And they just start yarding on the bow line, stretches out on the rock. 
pulling on the boat. I'm sitting, just pushing on an oar, trying to get it to wiggle loose. And it starts to break free, and we spin us off. I push the oar in. They drop the rope. He reels it in, and we go back. And it was all in all probably, I don't know, less than 10 minutes. Thankfully, that was the biggest carnage of the whole thing. Uh, and I got my shotgun pink vapor stew. It's an awful, awful sour beer. It's got it's got great intentions, and it's also got onions in it. It's a stew. It's got like it's got like a whole bunch of different vegetables and stuff in it, and it is pink because it's got beets in it. And we use those as punishments. Zach, you definitely got his pink vapor stew at that day. Yeah. How about some um, some favorite places? Tell us about a favorite place down there. There are tons of beautiful side hikes you can do. Every single turn is beautiful. Two that are immediately coming to my mind, Elves Chasm and Thunder River. It is absolutely amazing. This, but The hike up to it itself is, is beautiful. You hike up through these, you get this crazy straight up kind of cliff thing, and then you hike up on that layer, and you get to this big open cottonwood valley kind of area, and then you climb up even higher, another kind of layer up, um, because it's all striated, you know, different um, rock uh, types. Thunder River was epic, where this little river of water, which isn't actually, I mean, it's not a ton, but it pours out from this hole in the middle of the sandstone cliffs and cascades over this series of falls, and there's huge cottonwoods, these couple hundred-year-old cottonwoods, these massive things are all gnarled and moss, and I mean, it's, it is otherworldly that this place even exists. Um, a few of us climbed up to, you know, it's a fairly exposed kind of a sketchy climb, but you can get to the point where you can look inside of this hole and you see the water just start to run and drop off. It doesn't like pour off, but it just drops off. Thunder River School. It's just absolutely beautiful. Last question, probably the most important question. At the end of your trip, did you have any toilet paper left? <laughs> Ooh, this is a, this is a, uh, I don't know if everybody knows this, but yes, unbeknownst to us, toilet paper was in demand. And I'll be honest with you, we left probably eight to nine rolls of toilet paper in that um, 20 mil ammo can that our Porto resupply was packed in that went back. Once we got to the hotel in Flagstaff, I brought it up to somebody at the end that we left. We left all that toilet paper. Everything was divvied up. Garbage bags and dish soap. But nobody wants to take home toilet paper that's not as good as the toilet paper you use at home. In hindsight. Yeah, in hindsight. I think that's a good end of the story. This episode of The River Radius was recorded and produced by me, Sam Carter. Creative editing comes from Rose Russell. Logistical and foundational support was provided by John Romeo and Josh Munson. All music is written and produced by Diabolical Sound Platoon. Massive thanks go out to Mason One Chain Thomas and Zach Edler for sharing their story. You can find The River Radius by name on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, and our website. If you enjoy our work, like us, share us, and listen to us. We are always looking for more great show topics and leads on river culture. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com more episodes are available online thanks so much for joining the river radius we basically eat in and out 
It's an awful, awful sour beer. We use those as punishments. Things like, oh yeah, because you look just like my one friend that I used to boat with, and you look like my cousin. I don't track when and how I buy toilet paper. I buy it when I need it. Tee up to it, okay? If it's coming at you, put your nose into it, hit it hard. Tee up, you know? Just go for it. That's parting advice from one chain right there. <laughs>